0: Well, if you braved the great monsoon of 2019 last week and were able to get to church, then you'll likely remember that last Sunday we looked at the trial of Peter and John in Acts 4. Peter and John healed a crippled man who had for years sat outside the temple at the beautiful gate begging for money. They healed him in the name of Jesus. And afterwards, Peter explained to a crowd in the temple that the healing of this crippled man is evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive and is working in this world from heaven. About 5,000 people heard Peter that day and they believed what he said about Jesus because there was no denying that this crippled man whom everyone knew had been healed. But the priests and the leaders of the temple did not believe. In fact, they felt threatened by this Jesus whom Peter and John were talking about. They had pressed for Jesus' crucifixion And now Peter and John are providing evidence that he's still alive. It's a terrifying moment for the priests and the rulers of the temple. And so they threatened Peter and John to stop talking about Jesus, and they released them, sent them home. Peter and John left their trial victorious, which is where our passage picks up this morning. They had witnessed God's ability to frustrate the plans of those who oppose him. It was the end of last week's passage, but it's worth revisiting. Look at the helpless position of the powerful. Annas and Caiaphas were present at the mock trial of Jesus that resulted in his crucifixion. And Luke tells us that they were present at the trial of Peter and John as well. They would have loved nothing more than to also silence two of Jesus' closest disciples in Peter and John and also hide the evidence of the healed man, but they couldn't do anything. The people whom they depended upon in order to maintain their powerful position in society prevented them from doing what they wanted to do. Kill those three and the people would have revolted against them because the people were celebrating the healing of this crippled man. But let Peter and John go on talking about Jesus and the people would continue to become Christians by the thousands. They were in a lose-lose situation, so they took their only option threatened Peter and John, hoping that their power and station in life would be enough to demand obedience. But even these uneducated and common men, these fishermen, disregarded their threats. The powerful had become powerless and pathetic, and the dismissal of Peter and John was almost a relief to their damaged pride. Peter and John left rejoicing and immediately went to their friends to tell them of their experience They had witnessed the limits that God has placed on evil in this world. God restrains evil in this world as he restrains the oceans, telling it this far and no farther. Yes, there is great unspeakable wickedness in this world, just as the oceans and rivers from time to time flood their boundaries to wreak havoc. But both in the church and outside the church, the brokenness and perversion of humanity can be found, and yet it's scary to admit that we are not as bad as we would be should God ever let us always have our own way. It's a mercy that we have limitations. God restrains the power of humanity and often frustrates our plans in order to preserve his creation. Under God's divine control, evil becomes self-defeating. The words of the psalmist become true. The wicked dig a pit and fall into it themselves. They lay a snare and their foot is caught in it. Surely nothing falls outside of the control of God. And when Peter and John returned to their friends, their first impulse was to pray together. But their prayer was not one that you're likely to hear in the church prayed today. They did not pray that God would protect them or keep them from future arrests. No, they prayed two things. First, they reminded themselves of the sovereignty of God over all things, even their very lives. God is like an umbrella fully extended over the universe. Everything that happens in the universe takes place under him. And then they prayed for the boldness under his sovereignty to continue preaching Jesus despite the threats made to their lives. They prayed for the confidence to practice self-abandonment for the sake of Jesus under the sovereignty of God. It was the death and resurrection of Jesus that inspired them to pray in this way. In verse 27, they recall that in Jerusalem, the whole world had conspired against Jesus in order to kill him. But, when they make, but then they make the most profound statement in verse 28. For in verse 28, they declare that the world was only acting in accordance with God's plan. Herod and Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles all conspired together to put Jesus to death according to the very plan of God. While Satan was celebrating his victory at the very same moment, God was pleased with how his plan was taking shape. Even the death of Jesus Christ, which appeared to be out of control, was under God's control. And as the apostles prayed, they turned to Psalm 2 as a a guide to their understanding of God's sovereignty in the life of not only Jesus, but also all those whom he loves. Psalm 2 opens with the nations wildly stamping their feet and throwing their head around like a horse chomping the bit that God has placed in its mouth. Humanity rages against God, and in a section of the psalm not quoted in our passage this morning, our plans to cast off the restrictions and limits of God, that God has placed on us are exposed. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we've believed the lie that humanity is only free if there are no restrictions. But rise above the limits that set on humanity, and what you get is not freedom but chaos. A river that rises above its its banks is a flood. A whale that leaves the water will suffocate. Humanity that tries to be divine is only flirting with death. Jesus comes and he preaches repentance. Humble yourselves before God and he will raise you up accept your position as God's creation with all its limitations and restrictions and only then will you be made free. But humanity put the Son of God to death in order to silence Him. We didn't and still don't want to hear anything that would suggest that we are not independent, self-sufficient, self-defined creatures. Over all this, uh, over all this raging, the psalm tells us that God the Father shakes His head and laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. For in our blind fury, we did not realize that Jesus' death proved his point. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God raised him up from the dead and lifted him into the heavens and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus died, when he lowered himself, he was made all the more powerful for he now lives beyond the reach of death. And in this divine act of love, he won our hearts for himself. We were his enemies. We opposed him because he told us that we would find life only when we died to ourselves. That's craziness to our ears. But he died for us and he made us alive. Jesus made us his brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living, sovereign God. And through faith in him, we died, and when he was raised, we were also raised to new life, but the life we now live is no longer our own. It's his. We belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. From beyond the grave, Jesus now works through us to continue his work on earth. And he has rendered those who still oppose him and his church in this world as powerless as the priests and Sadducees were when they threatened Peter and John to no longer talk about Jesus. Or else what? The Christian, under the providence of God, can boldly say to the face of anyone who attempts to stop us from carrying out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing in this world can take us out of the hand of God our Savior. Nothing. Satan thought he had won that dark day in Jerusalem, but he only made himself powerless. He can only scratch and harm our bodies, but both our bodies and our souls lie in the hands of God, our Creator. It was a result that Satan did not see coming when he entered into Judas and led him in the betrayal of Jesus, but God did. And herein lies a great comfort for the Christian. Everything in this world is under the control of God. If even the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Lay in the control and plan of God, then surely it's no trouble for God to order our lives as well. In his commentary on Acts, John Calvin writes God so governs and guides all things by his secret counsel that he does bring to pass those things which he has determined, even by the wicked. Not that they are ready willingly to do him such service, but because he turns their counsels and attempts backward. So that on the one side appears great equity and most great righteousness. On the other appears nothing but wickedness and iniquity. What Calvin is saying that is that God is able to order absolutely everything, even the wicked intentions of humanity, to accomplish His purposes in this life. There's a deep, deep peace in believing in the absolute sovereignty of God. At some level, everyone believes in the sovereignty of someone or something, But only the sovereignty of the triune God, the God of the Bible, is at comfort. Everyone believes that someone or something is ordering history in some way. Otherwise, there would be no purpose or meaning, and life is a bunch of random, often cruel events that serve no purpose. In order to live, though, most people can't believe that, so they believe something else. For the ancient Greeks, it was fate that ordered life. But fate is a ruthless, impersonal force that insists on having its way irrespective of the autonomy of the individual. And the classic example of this is is the Greek tragedy of Oedipus, right? The fate of Oedipus, that he would murder his father and marry his mother, is disclosed by an oracle at his birth. And his entire life is this unwitting fulfillment of fate's intentions. Oedipus acts blindly, and his father is unable to prevent his own murder... ...despite demanding Oedipus' death while he was still an infant. Fate grinds on and has its way. But Christianity differs from the deterministic fatalism of the Greeks. Christianity says that humanity had a choice. But we chose rebellion over obedience. And in that decision, the nature of humanity became corrupted. And out of that corrupt nature we make the free choice to please ourselves rather than God. But God mercifully restores us through Jesus Christ, and in Him we are able to freely choose that which pleases God again. Christianity says that we are not mindless automatons, but creatures from whom God elicits praise in response to the grace He extends to us in Jesus Christ. For the Greeks, it was fate. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was the warring gods who... Ordered life on earth, on Earth, often to their own leisure. Humanity existed to serve the gods, but humanity had the difficult task of delicately navigating the power struggles and preferences of the many gods. Neglect a god, and in their jealousy, they made you pay. Make too much noise, and the, ga- the gods would drown you in a flood. It was a precarious life, but Christianity says there's only one god who does not change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and he faces no competition. He has even turned death, humanity's greatest enemy, into a powerless event in the life of the Christian. In Jesus, death has become almost a formality in the life of the Christian. In some Eastern religions, it's karma that governs the universe. The law of karma is essentially cause and effect applied absolutely to the moral and spiritual realm. Houston Smith, in his book The World Religions, describes how karma works. The present condition of each interior life, how happy it is, how confused or serene, how much it sees, is an exact product of what it has wanted and done in the past. Equally, its present thoughts and decisions are determining its future experiences. Each act that is directed upon the world has its equal and opposite reaction on oneself. Each thought and deed delivers an unseen chisel blow that sculpts one's destiny. Karma literally translates as work. And what Houston Smith is saying is that your work now has a direct impact on the quality of your next life. The Christianity says that your work does not determine your future, but the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Christians brought only sin to the equation. But Jesus brought his perfection and righteousness and transferred it to us when he died on the cross for our sin. Christianity says you don't get what you deserve. And in a modern Western world like the one we live in now, which looks to science to provide a a grand narrative that explains all of life, it's natural selection that determines life for an individual. The adaptive and the strong survive. But Christianity says that God raises up the weak and the lowly and humbles the proud and the powerful. God loves people regardless of their strengths and weaknesses, their successes or failures. He loved us while we were still sinners, even. You see, Christianity says that the entire world is in the control of a person and not an impersonal force. And this person is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. He is, the Bible says, the most selfless and gracious and loving and yet just and powerful and pure person to have ever lived. He has no contender, no limits. He is alive, and he loves you. What a comfort to know that our lives are in the hands of such a just and loving God. Everything belongs to him. And look at the way the apostles pray. In verse 29, they refer to themselves as God's servants. In verse 25, they refer to King David as God's servant. They even refer to Jesus as God's servant in verse 27. God is the ruler of all of life, and everyone else in the world is but a servant whom he uses to carry out his will. As the apostles begin their prayer, they remind themselves that God is the creator of every space, the heavens and the earth and the sea, and also everything contained within those spaces, the angels and humanity, the great creatures of the deep. The language the apostles use in their prayer even demonstrates their understanding that God is the actor in the universe. We are the reactor. It was God who spoke through, through David. And it is God who, in verse 30, will work through Jesus Christ to bring about healing in this world. He will do it. And it is God who provides these uneducated and common men with the boldness to continue talking about Jesus even though the priests and rulers of the temple threaten their lives, he does it. You, your, it's all over their prayer. Everything about this prayer and the apostles' experience is reminding us that God is in control of our lives. Even when things seem so utterly out of control, he is in control, which changes the way that you pray. It changes the way you view life. It sure did for Peter and John. If you believe that all of this life is in God's control, you stop praying for comfort and you start praying for faithfulness. You stop praying for the growth of your own kingdom and you start praying for God's instead. You become more open to God shaping you through suffering and the frustration of things not going according to your plan. You begin listening for God instead of only making demands on Him. And the opinions of the world become of little account to you. You become bold and unshakable, no matter how common or uneducated you may be. Our passage this morning ends with an earthquake. The Christians said their amens and the room shook. It's a strange occurrence, but it was God's way of saying, I hear you. I've heard your prayer. As John Chrysostom wrote, the place was shaken. And that made them all the more unshaken. May you go into the world unshaken as well, for Jesus is alive. Your lives are hidden in Him, and He is Lord of all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.